Welcome to the FieldLink Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Smith. And this episode is brought to you by Zypro with patented enzyme technology. Zypro opens the door to nutrition by boosting soil productivity and enhancing root effectiveness. On this episode, we catch up with Fritz Westover from the host of the Vineyard Underground podcast. This Texas wine expert joins Helena Agri-Intelligence agronomist Paul Kraut, and they discuss the similarities and differences in wine grape production across the entire United States. Plus, the USDA grain supply report that was recently released shocked many traders and growers. Jody Lawrence will dive into what this recent news about the supply means to producers in the U.S., and he'll pass on some advice for marketing your crop in 2024. Stay tuned for this episode of FieldLink. This episode is brought to you by Grounded, a multifunctional adjuvant from Helena. Put every drop of your soil-applied herbicides to work and improve early season weed control with Grounded. Visit HelenaAgra.com to learn more. Joining us from California, who's actually here in our podcast studio at FieldLink Studio in Memphis today, is Paul Kraut. Paul is the Agri-Intelligence Agronomist and Organics Manager for the Western Half of the United States. And also joining us from Houston, Texas, is Fritz Westover. And Fritz is with Westover Vineyard Advising out of Houston. And guys, want to welcome you all here to FieldLink. Thank you, Fritz. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. Appreciate it, Bill. Hey, man, uh, guys, we're really excited today to deep dive into, you know, the the wide range of grapes. And we're going to talk about uh, wine and growing wine and what's, you know, the complexity of it. But at the same time, there's a lot of things that are kind of the same. And we'll chat a little bit about that. But before we deep dive into the wine world, uh, let's get a little background on both of y'all. But Paul, you've been, you're a kind of a perennial guest here. You, you've been on several podcasts, but give everybody a quick overview of your background. Oh, thanks. Bill. Uh, yeah, and it is a pleasure to be back on the podcast. I think this is number four. I always like talking about wine grapes and wine. Everybody loves to hear about wine, so and I just like to talk about it. So yeah, anyways, uh, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm the uh, agri-intelligence and agronomy manager for the Western U.S. now for Helena. Been with Helena for about 10 years. Uh, prior to that, I was a, a vineyard manager, managed about a thousand acres of grapes on the central coast of California, so San Luis Obispo County. And then before that, was a vineyard consultant and, you know, have been involved in grapes and grape growing in California specifically for since, well, I'm dating myself since 1999. There you go. Awesome. And also joining us today from uh, Houston is uh, Fritz Westover. Fritz, welcome to FieldLink. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Fritz, you not only run a consulting business, but you're also a host of the Vineyard Underground podcast as well as you've got a learning academy. Tell us a little bit about that and tell us a little bit about you, Fritz. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll start with me. Uh, you know, like Paul, I'm also big into helping grape growers. Viticulture is primarily what I do, 100%. I, I don't work with other crops. Uh, I've been doing it for about 23 years. So Paul, I'll date myself. My first vineyard job was also in 1999. So, Love it. <laughs> yeah, and I started in Pennsylvania. I went to Penn State and did my undergrad and master's there. And, and then I worked for Virginia Tech for a while and, and worked as a viticulture extension uh, agent researcher there in Virginia Tech for a few years. And then I moved down to Texas and, and took another position with a family move and worked with Texas A&M, again, with the extension service. So uh, helping as a public servant with the wine and grape industry, again, as an educator. And uh, what I do now for my living is I help 
grape growers just like I did before. I just do it in, in my own format. So I'm, I'm consulting. I run a consulting business, primarily helping grape growers in the state of Texas, where I reside. Uh, so I work all over Texas, the High Plains, the Hill Country, and other areas of the state. I fly out to Georgia and visit my growers in Georgia, work with a lot of grape growers in the northern Georgia area in the Blue Ridge Mountains, beautiful mountain viticulture there, growing vinifera and hybrids. I make it out to Arizona a few times a year and work with growers in Arizona too. They're doing some amazing work out there. And then, uh, you know, when I got myself stretched a little thin, I started an online academy because I had all this educational information I was using with my clients and wanted to, to reach more growers and, and help them as well. So I started Virtual Viticulture Academy, which is my online advising and educational platform. Started that about six years ago. And uh, believe it or not, we have growers now that are members of the academy in over 30 states in the United States in about 10 countries abroad. So wow. it's kind of like a, a window to the world of grape growing. No matter where you are, there's someone who either has a better or worse than you uh, or is learning from you and carrying over those ideas into a new region. So that's been fun. And, uh, and of course, I, I also do some podcasting. I started the Vineyard Underground podcast a year ago. So I'm, I'm a year into that and, and up to about episode 40. And I don't see that stopping anytime soon. I love jumping behind this mic and talking with all these contacts around the world. Paul's been on my podcast before to chat about, you know, grapevine nutrition. We can chat about nutrition and, and spray adjuvants uh, ad nauseum all day long. It's super fun for us. If it's fun for you, you know, check out the podcast with Paul. That was a good one. Um, but that's kind of what I'm doing now. And, uh, you know, uh, there's, uh, there's just so many opportunities to work with grape growers and help them. And I'm just trying to find unique ways to do it. Well, Fritz, we're excited to have you here uh, joining us here on the FieldLink podcast. And you touched on some really important things, guys, that I think is really important. You know, uh, growing grapes, yes, they're, they're really grown all over the U.S. I think a lot of folks tend to think, oh, wow, yeah, all the wine comes from California. And certainly a lot of it does. But grapes and wine grapes can be grown pretty much in every state in the country. Is that correct, guys? Yeah, that's, I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, as, as we mentioned, there there are wine grapes grown, you know, or grapes grown for wine in almost all, you know, pretty much all 50 states, Hawaii included. There's wine grapes grown in Hawaii and, and all over the place. So, I mean, I think that's the that's the really, the, the interesting thing that people don't think about. So yes, probably, you know, 90% of wine and, and grapes are grown in, you know, in California. Well, probably less than that, but... But that's when everybody thinks about sure. vineyards and, and wine. They, they think California and absolutely sure. I'm biased. There's some phenomenal, you know, it's a great grape growing region. It's perfect. It's Mediterranean, you know, growing region. There's only, what, four Mediterranean climates, you know, in the world between the Mediterranean, California, you know, Argentina and, and Australia. And so that's like the primary area. But We've got hybrids. We've got you know new genetics and technologies that that allow us to to really grow grapes all over the place and and actually make some really good really good wine in the state of Louisiana and the state of Georgia. And I think Fritz can definitely speak to speak to that to that side of it. Yeah. So you know, if I, I worked in Virginia for a while, and when I you know moved down to Texas, you know I go back to Virginia, and there, I th if you look in the order of operations, the top states in grape production are obviously California, you've got Washington State, Oregon, and then it kind of moves into Virginia or New York, you know, if you count the juice grapes in New York. And then Texas is a really big player. In fact, uh, Texas is probably past Virginia in terms of production and acreage of, of wine grapes. And if you go to someone somewhere in Virginia and say, hey, I'm from Texas and, you know, I'm a viticulturist, they're going to say, you grow grapes in Texas? And then you come down to Texas and you say, hey, I just visited some great 
vineyards in, in Northern Virginia. And they're going to say they grow grapes in Virginia. It's like, no one really knows what's <laughs> going on all over the, the country. And so, um, what's, what's really awesome for me is to be able to, to work with growers in so many regions and see, you know, Paul mentioned genetics. We have the Minnesota varieties that grow in Nebraska, Iowa, Michigan, Minnesota, obviously, and all these, um, states that, that get down to negative 20 Fahrenheit. I mean, sure. you can't grow vinifera like we know it, like Chardonnay, Cab or Merlot, just to name the, the most common in those climates, but uh, the viticulture practices they're using and the nutrition management and the spray program and all these other things are very similar in many ways. There's a lot of parallels. They're just doing different grape varieties. And, and like, uh, you know, those regions that are established now, uh, we're struggling maybe, you know, 50 years ago to discover what varieties would do well and how to make good wine from it. Well, they're just a little, you know, farther down the curve on that. They're still learning what varieties to grow, how to make good wine from it. And that's the exciting time to be involved in those industries. Yeah, that's, that's a really uh, a great illustration of how wide and, and how far, you know, this industry truly does reach. You know, I grew up in Nebraska, and it's crazy to think, but I haven't been there in 30-some years. But some of our neighbors are now have some very large vineyards and raising a lot of grapes. Now, certainly they import other grapes, uh, you know, to make their final product, but they're using a lot of grapes right there in Nebraska. Who'd have thought? You know, you think Nebraska, you think corn, right? Exactly. That's that's yeah. the beauty of wine grapes, and that's the beauty of wine because, you know, I don't want to, I don't know if we want to get into so much into wine appreciation, but uh, you know, I think you know the the awesome thing about making about you know growing wine grapes and then the art of making wine is, is that you can have the doesn't matter what well it usually does matter what grape it is, but you find the right grape combination and you can make some really great regional wines that you can't find and you can't taste anywhere else. That's, it is, I've had, yeah, I've had wine from, you know, Missouri and then obviously Finger Lakes region of New York and Pennsylvania. And it's, you know, you might see, okay, yeah, it's, it's a, you know, a Cabernet or it's a Cabernet hybrid, but it doesn't taste like Cabernet from California or it doesn't even, it doesn't taste like Cabernet from Washington, but it's its own unique thing. And I think that is, that's the great thing about wine grapes in in my mind that that has always attracted me to wine grapes is, is that you can grow you know, on the same acre, you can grow the same grapes, give those grapes to three different, four different winemakers, and you have four different kinds of wine. That's the beautiful part of that about making wine and wine appreciations. There's something for everybody sure. in my mind at the end of the day. And the same goes for growing grapes. There's with sound agronomic practices and actually, you know, understanding how we can grow these vines, you know, and being able to understand what their nutrient needs are and how to balance them and, and all these things that we use in California, we use in other, you know, in other states to get that that final product that we're looking for, which is a good, nice, plump wine grape. Yeah, Fritz, let's deep dive there a little bit. You know, Paul talked about, you know, there's a lot of, I guess, fundamentals are kind of the same, no matter if we're in Georgia or California or New York or Texas, but there are some fundamental differences. Could you share with us from your, you know, your wide experience, what are some of the basic differences of growing grapes in, say, New York or versus Texas? Yeah, so th there's a lot of differences. And, and also there's trends, you know, as any wine region would have, there's regional trends and, and beliefs and philosophies that are kind of local, 
But, you know, one of the biggest differences between, you know, New York and Texas or New York and California, I think is basically just the how the grapes are grown in, in f- as far as the trellis goes. Mm, you know, okay. the, the varieties of grapes that are growing in cold climates or cool climates are oftentimes uh, hybrid grapes that are maybe more disease resistant, don't need as many uh, sprays on them for fungal control or other problems. And so, you know, we can really get away from that vertical shoot positioning, which is where we grow the grapes in the most traditional sense where you see all over Napa or Sonoma, if you've been there, or Europe, where you've got the shoots growing upward into a series of wires usually, and and that exposes the fruit and a nice even open canopy for spray treatments, sun, sun and airflow penetration. When you start getting into these varieties that are really more uh, hardy, cold hardy, but not only that, also disease resistant and pest resistant, you can start putting them on a high wire and letting them drape, or you can put them on a divided training system like the Watson system is one that I'm working with that developed here in Texas. And uh, and so you can start doing different things that aren't really traditional from the sense of maybe a California model. And what's funny about that to me is now we're seeing in California and other regions where they're growing grapes, they're starting to actually move to that high cordon or high wire, fruiting wire model because labor's an issue. And you know, so if you're growing Concord on a high wire 50 years ago, in Geneva, New York, uh, you know, you didn't have labor and you tried to mechanize as much as you could because you're getting $250 back then, much less per ton of Concord to sell to Welch's or something like that. These are just rough numbers. But, you know, you look at Cabernet, it's grown now in California on a high wire system and mechanically harvested and pruned. So when I say trends, I mean, these things are, can be cyclical, but we kind of borrow from different regions and learn that there isn't just one way to do it. There's a lot of ways to do it. And that's why I love working with all the states because growers are adopting practices that were created in Texas, now in Georgia, where I work. And then from that, so like, I'll give you an example. There's this training system called the Watson system. And it's basically uh, this man, Jerry Watson, who's not far from Houston, Texas, was growing a grape called uh, Blanc du Bois. It's a Pierce's disease resistant variety. He was growing it on a high wire and the shoots were draping down and they were blocking the fruit and blocking the sprays. And we have a lot of disease issues and it was hard to hand harvest them because hand, hand labor was everything in the day he created it. And so he put a series of cross arms up and lifted the the shoots up away from the fruit and let air flow in there and allowed better management and hand harvesting and spray penetration. And so this became known as the Watson system locally here. And when growers came down from Georgia, they said, we want to grow this Pierce's disease tolerant variety too. What's the best training system? And we all said, well, the Watson system's getting the best yields because it's a horizontally divided system. So it has two fruiting zones instead of one. You have more foliage and more fruit using this system. Well, then when I worked in California, uh, out there on the Central Coast, that's where I first met Paul, uh, who's here today too, a sheep expert was in a room where I was talking about this system, Kelly Mulville over at Picinus Ranch in California and the Central Coast as well. And he said, you know, we, we graze sheep in vineyards and we'd like to find a system where they can't eat the fruit so we can graze them year round. And so I got involved with Kelly and now Kelly's growing 100% vinifera, things like Cabernet, Grenache, Pickpool Blanc, you know, lots of different unique varieties that we're familiar with on the Watson system Mm. in California. So to me, it's just amazing to see how you can take from one place and and bring it to another and tweak it to the local conditions. And and lo and behold, you've got yourself some innovation. And so what we're doing in different states, I think we need to pay attention to. I think there's a lot to be learned from it. And if you're just staying in your local bubble, you're not getting the full picture. So get out there. 
And you bring up a great point, uh, Fritz. You know, we're start. You know, we're talking pretty concentrated around the U.S., but you have some experience globally as well. You mentioned earlier uh, when we were chatting, you've got about ten different countries that you're working with through your academy. Is that correct? It's correct. So some of those are members who utilize, you know, the videos on pruning mm-hmm. to help train their crews, or occasionally they'll they'll check in and get some uh, feedback on a picture or something in their vineyard where they've got a, a rare symptom showing up. And and so I, you know, I've gotten pretty good at diagnosing these problems as you have too, Paul. So I'm not physically consulting mm-hmm. in these countries. However, I've gone to visit these growers sure. and walk through some of their vineyards, especially Montecalvi in Italy, beautiful vineyard there. But it's really unique to see that they. Have have a lot of similar problems that we do here in North America as well. And uh, sometimes they have different tools available to them there. They may not have the same fertilizers or spray products, but there's a lot of overlap. And so I'm, uh, I'm just really excited that there's people who have an interest in what's going on here and are just kind of, they're almost like sitting on the sideline and watching sure. a lot. And learning and just, uh, you know, they, they don't necessarily have a question every time we get together, but they want to sit in and listen and they're there to learn. Yeah. Well, that's really cool to, to, to take some of those, I guess, uh, practices and that we can learn globally and apply them here locally in the U.S. Maybe it fits in Georgia, maybe it fits in Oregon, for example. But it's really, as you mentioned, Fritz, good to be really open-minded when raising, you know, grapes across the U.S. Paul, let's talk a little bit some of the agronomic things that you've picked up. You know, you've traveled back and forth. I know you you go and help a lot of our Helena folks in Pennsylvania or New York from time to time as a guest speaker, consultant, that sort of thing. What are you picking up from the agronomic side of things? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, and I want to highlight actually one point that Fritz made is, is that, you know, from a phys- philosophical mm-hmm. kind kind of approach. And the beautiful thing about wine grapes is, is that they are very flexible. We can grow the same variety and trellis it 10 different ways, prune it, you know, different ways and get these different results that specifically address those, you know, those climatic conditions, just like Fritz mentioned, you know, in, you know, the cold, well, we're actually developing, you know, using these, you know, similar high wire systems, but for heat, because, you know, we've got temperatures are, are rising in California. And so we actually need to provide more shade for the grape clusters rather than being in, you know, more of those those open type environments. So, you know, we're, we're having to adapt a, a, as well. But I think one of the interesting things is when you talk about, you know, the agronomy of wine grape growing is I've gotten to visit with growers and consultants and, our, you know, our customers in a number of different states. And I've, I've gotten to, to speak at, at different events and and really talking about, you know, the practices that we use from a, you know, I would say a scientific or an agronomic point. You know, they're all the same. We, we sample the soil. We sample the tissue. We sample the water that's going on if they're an irrigated crop. To, to give us, you know, the information that we need to understand what, you know, what the vines need at the end of the day. And so, you know, in California, we need a lot of potassium because our soils are deficient in potassium. In Texas, they've got plenty of potassium. They don't need to apply potassium, but it's, it's important to be able to understand, you know, what the vines needs are and then tailor our, you know, our fertility programs and our inputs to what those specific needs are. And so the foundation is the same. My, you know, the format that I use, the kind of the decision tree that I use is similar across all the different regions. I'm taking in understanding what the levels of of nutrients are, what the balances are, and then 
writing a basically a prescriptive recommendation to address those needs specifically. And that's kind of, we've talked about the GrapeWise system, the GrapeWise program that we developed a few years ago. And it really takes into to consideration, you know, these are these are practices that, that we as viticulturists and as consultants have, have always done. Just maybe we don't put them together in a, in a, in a package. And, and so when I build a, what I call a GrapeWise program, it's taking all these different pieces into consideration, be it with, you know, soil mapping, and and you know understanding the variations in the soil with you know with our high ground system and then you know taking tissue samples and, and understanding the the variability in you know nutrients across different parts of the vineyard and same with water we obviously we, we irrigate in the west well at least in California and understanding what what's in the water the water chemistry because that's irrigated crops water is the greatest input of them all and so understanding the you know you can actually be hurting your vines by watering them with high boron water or high salinity water. Um, And so being able to understand that and to account for that within the program is critical. So you have sampling, so you're finding out what the challenges are. We have you know, obviously we, we have a number of products and solutions at the end of the day that, that we can then plug in to address those challenges. And then, you know, we use our, our agronomists and the scientific know-how of our team to really explain and understand and adapt as those, you know, those those inputs are made. And then we, you know, we utilize support from consultants like Fritz on mm-hmm. that, those really critical, you know, the trellising, the, the cultural practices that, that we can then use because that's, you know, the, the fertility, the, you know, understand that's just one part of the greater system. And so having all that information in place helps us as viticulturists and consultants, when we're making recommendations to growers, we're taking all of that information into consideration. It's not just, oh, you need nitrogen, here's nitrogen, and then walk right. away. It is a it is a fully integrated type of thought process and system. Because you know, one thing that we haven't mentioned is, is, I mean, wine grapes are awesome. They're very flexible, but you can be a hero or a zero, depending on your fertility program. You can mess up wine, you know, the wine juice chemistry, and you can mess up a lot, you know, using the wrong inputs at the wrong time. And I think that's where the knowledge and the expertise of the experience of, you know, viticulturists and and agronomists, Helena, who understand that and outside, you know, and that's why Fritz and I, we talk all the time. We're texting back and, and forth each other. He's got a question about a spray solution. I've got a question about a you know this trellising thing. And it's, it's, it's all about, you know, connection, because I think that's the other really cool thing about the grape industry is is that grape growers we all share information we're all everybody's sharing what they're doing because it's not like you know the our produce is is a commodity it's not like it's you know number two corn or whatever where you and the next guy you know your advantage is yield or whatever no our industry shares information like nobody's business i mean there is some secret stuff that some people think they're doing but you know really at the end of the day it's it's all about helping everybody and, and sharing that knowledge and the yeah, experience yeah, Paul, they, they just want you to think they're doing something special <laughs> and that's why they make it secretive i think that's, that's the, the uh, that's the that's the approach they're going for yeah i it, it really feels, you know, just listening to you two chat back and forth, it's really kind of an open community, uh, a community of, you know, we want to share best practices. 
Absolutely. I, you know, I think because we have so many challenges, you know, I mean, obviously in agriculture in general, but even in the wine grape industry, we've got challenges from, you know, obviously, you know, labor is a challenge. You know, the economics of inputs is a challenge. Invasive species. I mean, we've, I, I am, I don't even want to talk about the spotted lanternfly on this podcast. That scares the heck out of me. We've got these challenges. And so we need to be talking as an industry and sharing experience and knowledge to, to be able to overcome some of these challenges as the industry, you know, and the world becomes more and more globalized. These invasive species are popping up every day. And so I think that kind of openness to, to sharing knowledge and experience and best practices is something that, that definitely sets the industry apart. Fritz, what kind of things, you know, you've got a number of clients throughout the, the U.S. too. What are some of the big things that are keeping them up at night when we talk about raising a quality product uh, for, for the wine grape industry? Oh, I love these deep and open questions. They're, they're good because you can you can wax and wane on different topics. Thanks, <laughs> thanks, Bill. The, the, you know the the expression in areas outside that are less established for viticulture and vineyards is that uh, the number of new problems we find for viticulture and for vineyards is proportionally related to the number of new vineyards we decide to plant in areas that have not done it before, right? Okay. So so we find these new things as they pop up because n there's no history. There's not a 100-year history of grape growing. So, you know, you know, things like invasive species are one thing, but uh, when, you know, when we grow things in an area where they haven't really been tested yet, that you, you have pioneers. And so there's a lot of pioneers out there. And I work with a lot of pioneers. And I make it really clear up front, you are a pioneer if you're planting grapes in this area or if you're going to bring this new grape variety into this area, you're also a pioneer for doing that. Just because it's working, you know, I have one example now where I'm working with a grower in North Georgia and they had this terrible freeze December 24th in 2022. So it was a Christmas Eve freeze mm -hmm. and it, it went down to, you know, below zero Fahrenheit. It killed back all of their hardiest vinifera they had, uh, which was Petit Verdot, Cabernet Franc, all were killed back. Normally they can handle about five degrees, but not negative five. So that little bit just threw them over the edge. So now that grower wants to bring in some of those Minnesota varieties or something they're growing up north that can handle negative 20. So they never have to worry about that again. They take it out of the equation. But the challenge is, uh, for that grower now is how is this grape going to handle the humidity in my climate in North Georgia? Mm. The, the frequent rainfall that we have on almost a, a every other week basis during the season, they're all dry farm there. Is it going to ripen well when we have 3,000 uh, degree day accumulation during the season versus, you know, the 1,200 that it requires to ripen? Is the acidity going to drop out? Is the climate going to be good for the wine quality? And we don't have anyone we can compare it to. We don't have any wine we can buy from that local region where someone's done it yet. So I think that's, again, the pioneering part is exciting. But to answer your question with what keeps growers up all night, it's probably the change uh, in erratic weather patterns. Erratic weather is the thing. Call it whatever you want to, but we've, we're just seeing more extremes. We're seeing that freeze in December. The vines are not in their ultimate cold hardiness. There, there, there's the endodormancy, the ecodormancy, and you know the ultimate cold hardiness was not met. It was a warm fall, and so they, you know, that combination was terrible. Whereas maybe if it would have happened in January when the vines were fully dormant, it wouldn't have been an issue. So we're seeing more extreme weather patterns. We're seeing earlier bud burst than ever in history, and then that can bring on late freezes that you know, maybe they're not a late spring freeze, but now they are because everything came out early. So really, we can't control the weather. And what I have seen in 
terms of resilience to this, and I'll give Texas as the example here, growers on the high plains have been getting hit with late spring freezes for decades, and they grow vinifera up there. It's a, it's a cotton production area, peanut production area, row crops, and grapes uh, use less water, so there's a lot of interest in grapes there. There's probably you know uh, three or 4,000 acres, maybe more by now, of grapes on the Texas high plains alone. And They've put up frost machines, you know, wind machines okay. to, to skirt around that. So that's, that's a solution. But then they started getting hit with hail uh, during the season. And it would, it would plummet and it would take out 12-inch shoots and it would take out the crop. And, you know, you couldn't do much about that. So now we have growers not only with uh, this $40,000 wind machine that'll cover five acres, but they're putting up side netting that is so tight, it's hail-grade netting. So they're putting hail netting wow. up. They put that up as soon as they're done pruning. It is up year round. And so the the interesting thing is people say, well, they've spent $40,000 on this fan for five acres. Well, if you're getting, you know, let's say $2,000 a ton and five tons per acre, that's going to pay for itself in five acres if you save your crop one time, if it's a high quality grape that you're growing. Uh, same thing with hail netting. If you put that up and it costs you $2,500 an acre to buy it and install it, uh, and then you manage it, there's, there's costs with managing it each year. Pay for that with one and a half tons of fruit per acre one time. Right. And the cost of the netting is paid for. So I think part of the the challenge with this resilience is the economics and understanding. You know, you can take your chances and not do anything. But anyone who's been hit with the freeze more than once or hail more than once is going to jump right in and invest the money. And so that resilience mentality is kind of the new way of thinking. I think in terms of um, sustainability in the business mm -hmm. and longevity of vines uh, in the in their production. Because I don't know if you've ever seen a hail bludgeoned vine with um, quarter size hail, but you, you're going to have to retrain that thing from the ground up. It's going to be, it's worse than sending a bad pruner in your vineyard and hacking up your vines with electric shears. Okay, it is bad. And, and Fritz, help me out here because I'm I'm not a viticulturist like yourself, but a crop like that that gets hailed. I mean, we're out for the year. Or are we out for a couple years? Help me understand that. Yeah, so it you're out for more than a year because if you've got to do significant vine retraining, like to your mm -hmm. your cordons or fruiting arms, uh, that's a two year process to do that. The grower has a tough decision: do I just try and work with a vine that's compromised and keep in production and prolong doing it, or do I rip the bandaid off and get it done now so that you know I can go back into production? And a lot of times, you know, they'll rip the bandaid off, redo it, but then put up the hail netting so oh. it doesn't happen. Again. So in reality, they're had, two to three years out probably. Yeah, they're losing that year. And then the next year, because they're not going to do all the canopy work and management and cultural practices because they lost their crop, it also compromises the health and status of the vine for the following season. And it's more money to prune it and manage it the next year. And then they've got to, you know, so they've got to get through that. So it's a two to three year, uh, up to three years to get through a bad freeze event that, that causes dieback and permanent vine structures or a hail event that causes permanent damage or even seasonal damage. Damage. That's awesome insight for the average novice that's, you know, listening to the podcast that doesn't, doesn't really know the ins and outs of raising wine grapes. And, you know, I think one of the things that, Paul, you touched on it earlier that we've really tried to create here at Helena is the GrapeWise program. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I think about the GrapeWise program, it's really, I guess, kind of a combination of the art and the science of raising grapes. Could you expand on some of the things that 
brings that all together. Yeah, sure. I mean, when we think of GrapeWise and when, when we came up with, you know, I kind of came up with that concept, uh, you know, I'd been working for Helena for about six years, seven years and, and had farmed before that. And, and I was really thinking, okay, well, how can I better serve my customers? How can I help them be better grape growers, partner with them to, to really help them achieve what their goals are? Because again, farming, you know, it's a business. We're, we're in a business. We have specific goals. And I think that's one of the, one of the key things that that, that I really, one of the first things I ask if, you know, we sign up a new a grape wise grower is, is, well, what are your goals? What are, what, what are your needs? Because, you know, every grower has a different need. They might need to be farming for tonnage, so they might need yield. Others are, have specific quality requirements that, that they need to hit. They might have specific you know, specific environmental challenges, you know, they might be in a cold spot. I mean, we deal with frost as well. And so I need to take all that, that information in, into, you know, into consideration as I'm, you know, writing my, providing a, a recommendation is because too often, you know, we, we come into and, and we make assumptions about what the customer needs and what the grower needs. And, and so I always ask, you know, I'll, I'll go in a meeting, I'm just asking questions. I'm not saying anything because sure. it's, it's really important for me to understand what their needs are so you know so we can provide them with with a solution that is both the best for the crop and then also best for for their bottom line at the end of the day and like i mentioned earlier you know we can especially with fertility we can really mess things up if we you know overload or over you know over apply or you know or sometimes under apply the right nutrients and the right balance and i think that's where the that art comes in is you know when we're we're writing a recommendation okay we know what we call the the demand curves are for the vine so we know during different times of the year when the plant is in a specific physiological growth phase whether it's it's a rapidly growing time period or it's the plant is going through bloom or it's in that verasion that ripening period the plant has different nutritional needs during that time period it's just like you know a person if if you know you're running a marathon and you're training for a marathon you know that you you need more quick energy because you're mm-hmm. you know you're, you're exercising right and so you need a better balance you know of nutrients right Versus if you're we're hanging out here in, in you know Christmas break and sitting around you know eating eating ham and drinking wine, well we're not we're not using a lot of energy, so you know our energy needs are different. Same with the vines. So you have these different phases where the vines need these different nutrients at different ratios, and so understanding and knowing those demand curves and and how they work are really really critical in, in putting together I think a good fertility program because then we're 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 giving the vine the the nutrients that they need you know, when they need it, or actually hopefully prior to when they need it. So it's available to them and it's, it's in there when they need it to help those vines operate at a high functioning, you know, capacity as possible. I think that's, that's critical. And then we take into consideration, you know, the other, you know, the growers needs and, and mm-hmm. how they prune, you know, we had, you know, for example, we had, we were in California because we had so much rain this last year, you know, on the central coast, we usually get our average is about 16 inches. We had 40 inches of rain right um all the way through march our bud break so our our, the start of our season was delayed three to to four weeks and so normal practices and because the ground was so saturated a lot of the you know normal fertility practices that we do because we typically irrigate so we fertigate our you know use fertilizer and run it through the irrigation systems well i had growers who you know didn't irrigate until like the end of june so we missed three you know scheduled 
soil applied fertilizer application. So we had to adjust and figure out ways to, to get the nutrients to the vine because they still need the nutrients. And so to get the, you know, the vines, those, those nutrients in a different manner that made sense because they weren't irrigating. So we couldn't inject fertilizer. So I think that is a key part of, of the whole thought process and in what I think, you know, really good viticulturists do. It's it's not like this is the secret, you know, secret rocket science. It's, I mean, in my mind, it's common sense, but I can't tell you how many conversations I've had where I've talked to a customer and I've given them, you know, my opinion on something, you know, like this program. And they're like, I've never heard that before. And, and I was like, well, <laughs> good thing you called me or Fritz. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think the systems approach is always always wise to, to have a good plan. And I'm sure, Fritz, you, you kind of agree with that as well, to have a strategy going into every year knowing, hey, if these are my, I guess, core goals. Here's how we're going to approach it. And obviously, you got to be ready to pivot. Uh, is that kind of how you uh, approach that process, Fritz? Yeah, absolutely. But for, first, Paul, I just want to comment on your your December, uh, you know, lazy season. I ran nine miles last night to go and look at the Christmas lights around in my neighborhood. <laughs> so not everyone's sitting uh, sitting down around the holidays all here. Right, but I'm just going to let right. that I slide. I won't cast right? aspersions. <laughs> yeah. So, but but all joking aside, because Paul's a good friend of mine, the the systems approach is so important to everything I do. If if I didn't have some type of a systems approach, I couldn't work with as many growers as I do, and these vastly different regions with different rainfall, different soil pH. Some are irrigated, some are dry farmed, some, you know, so some have to apply fertilizer as a ground application and wait for it to rain that in. And some can apply it precisely with their their fertigation, like Paul said. And so I have to have these systems in place and the growers appreciate it too, because for them, it gives them a template to work on. So we know that we're not just going to follow a calendar date. Okay. Paul was just saying how the bud burst was delayed because of this rain. So not only did it delay the calendar dates for everything we normally do, but it, it changed people's mentality about irrigation and that ended up affecting their fer- fertilization program. Mm. So if you have a plan in place, you're not going to miss things like that. You're going to base things on the phenology of the vine at bud burst or before bud burst, we're doing this. And we get to 12 inch shoots with, you know, five to seven leaves fully unfolded, nutrients start getting taken up into the vines because we have evapotranspiration. Then we get to that pre bloom phase. And, and I know Paul's an advocate of sampling before bloom so we can get something in in time before fruit set comes. Mm-hmm. And I agree with that. And I agree with sampling again in Verasion. And then, then you have different benchmarks and, and throwing out all these vineyard phenology terms like bloom, fruit set, sure. verasion, berry touch, then you have harvest and even post-harvest. That's the time where you don't just sit back and take it easy and winemakers get busy in the winery. But us viticulturists know that you've got to prepare your vines for dormancy and make sure that if they were suffering going into ripening that crop, that maybe you're going to fertilize a little or water a little or maybe water a lot to push salts down below the root zone. There's so many things that are based on that vine phenology and the calendar of the vine rather than the, you know, the the regular calendar we use for the year. So what I do is I have an annual review with my clients every year. Um, and then f- those growers who are not my client have access to a vineyard management guide that I created just for the academy I work in so they can follow the phenological stages and they know what they need to be thinking out about for nutrition, 
about for irrigation and watering and for any pest or disease management and things like that throughout the season. And so they have that template. Mm. So, you know, when Paul's talking about the templates that he's producing and the, really the system that you're developing, it takes a, a grower's almost their concerns and worries away because they know they have something they can follow. They're not going to miss anything major. And then their support, you know, in, in my case, that's me or some video guides or courses I've done online for my growers. They know they can go to that and it's linked right there where they're looking at the phenological stage and they can view that and know that they can get some more advice and input so that they can customize uh, whatever the recommendation is for their site. You know, if they're a different soil type, different rainfall amount, different pest and disease in the region. You know, as an example, California, when I worked there, it was all about fungal disease. It was all about, let's say for foliar and fruit, we won't go into trunk disease, powdery mildew and bunch rot. Mostly botrytis, but other bunch rot as well. You come down to Texas or mostly anywhere east of the Rockies, the whole eastern coast of the United States, and you've got powdery mildew and botrytis, and you've got black rot, and you've got famopsis canin weave spot, and you've got downy mildew, mm -hmm. and you even have anthracnose. Mm -hmm. Sounds um, Most people don't even know what anthracnose is. They think of anthrax, but this is a plant pathogen, anthracnose, and we see that in the south. So there are so many more things that these growers need to be concerned about in those areas, but if they understand the phenology, they have their structured template in place for what they need to look for at each stage of the growth cycle. They can be prepared ahead of time to deal with it. They can be preventative, which is what you really need to be. Um, but if you need to be reactive, that's okay. For some things that will work. Not a big disease problem, but uh, it'll work for some things too. But having the resources in place and that guideline, I think that can fit over a large number of regions because we're all following the phenology of the grapevine. That's really important. I think that's great advice, uh, Fritz. And, and what I'm hearing is, Paul, you've incorporated a lot of the philosophy that Fritz just talked about into Absolutely. the GrapeWise program. Yep. And, you know, you combine, you know, the, the strategy with that along with the people and the technology to execute. And we've got to talk about the product side too. Sure. To have products that are specifically designed to address some of those challenges that, you know, you and Fritz might come across throughout that journey, throughout that crop's life. You've got to have the right product at the right time at the right place at the right rate, right? Yep. Yep. I mean, that's the foundation for, you know, the four R's as we, as, as you mentioned, I mean, that's the guiding philosophy for crop advisors. You know, it doesn't matter what, you know, honestly, what crop you're in, sure. but, but especially for, you know, for wine grapes, as, as I mentioned, you know, when we're applying products, fertilizers or chemistry or whatever, it's not, you, you just don't put it out there and forget it. You know, in the case of, say, nitrogen, understanding, knowing the type of nitrogen that you're applying, the type of nitrogen fertilizer, and when that nitrogen is going to be available to the plant, you know, at, at what time and in what quantity, it's critical because it could, you could miss, you know, your target. You could have applied nitrogen. This happens a lot for my organic growers especially, but you can apply nitrogen and it might take 30 days for that nitrogen to be actually become what we call plant available. Available, yeah. So if you apply that nitrogen one week before the plant needs it, but it takes 30 days for it to release, you've missed your target. And so really having a good understanding of, of what your inputs are, are really critical. And I think that's plug for Helen. I mean, that's one of the, the great things in about Helen is, is the, the products that we have that we have developed to address some of these situations. They are very precise, very well tested. So we know exactly if I'm going to put this iron product, be it a so ferulene is, is one of our soil applied iron products. I know that I can what I can mix it with. It, it is very predictable in what the end result is going to be. And so that is I think that's 
closing the loop. You know, we, we talk about mm-hmm. people, you know, and products and knowledge, right? That's that's Helena, right? Well, that products piece is that third component because you can have all the knowledge, you can have great people, but if you are not able to apply that knowledge and apply that experience with the, the proper materials, then you can be, you know, operating at a, you know, at a much less efficient way. You'll get by, but sure. you're not going to be, you know, at that high performing, you know, level that we really, we really want to accomplish. Yeah, it's really kind of, taking this whole, again, I keep coming back to the art and the science from for really from good to great. Yep. That's, that's the key. You know, vines will grow without any input. They'll, they will, they will make fruit without, mm-hmm. without any input, but we're the business of, of growing grapes, the, the, the economics of, of growing good grapes. You know, the vines have a, a certain level of genetic potential within each, each site and each position. And, and it's our job as good, you know, good managers and, and consultants and, and agronomists to, to really maximize that potential at that site for that grower at the end of the day. And, and that's where this, again, this all comes, you know, this, this, that philosophy just all comes to together with, with that in mind. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I, I I'd like to add to that because Paul, you recently have taken on a role in organics yes. and uh, with, with Helena. And uh, by the way, I'll have to have you on my, my uh, podcast about that sometime. Happily. But my point is, you know, if you are an organic grower and you, you have more limited resources in terms of types of fertilizer you can apply. You know, a lot of growers might turn to something like compost Mm. and put compost out in the vineyard. And they may almost do it blindly, just, you know, let's put compost out because I know that the grapes need, you know, compost has all of the nutrients. Sure. So we know the grapes need all of them. Let's put it all out. Um, But in turn, really your vines might only need a little zinc or boron, you mm-hmm. know, boron so important for fruit set or for nitrogen assimilation and utilization of nitrogen or zinc, the same thing. It's important for fruit set, but in order to get enough boron and zinc out of the compost you apply, you probably have to apply a lot. Of oh it. yeah. And so you're also applying a lot of other stuff. You're applying a lot of potassium, which you may not need a lot of nitrogen, you know, 15 to, to 30% of that available nitrogen Mm -hmm. is there in the first season of the application. And so you might offset and cause other issues where uh, maybe someone could talk to you, Paul, and say, hey, is there a good organic source of boron Mm -hmm. that I could apply to the vineyard? Because really that's all I need. And not only have you saved the money, probably got it, maybe it's a foliar application you can do. They're already applying foliar products. They mix it in the tank. Uh, They didn't have to buy expensive compost and apply it, or maybe they applied less of it. And you solve the problem without creating other problems with overly vigorous growth or competition of nutrients. You know, if you have a bunch of potassium out there, it's going to compete with your magnesium uptake. If you already have magnesium deficiency, boy, you didn't do your vines a favor by dumping all that compost out there. So I think what you're talking about is really dialing in the precision. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm a huge fan of that because usually you're going to end up saving money and preventing problems. And those are, that's a win-win. It, be it money, you know, saving on either labor because applying compost is very labor intensive. It's got to get, it's got to get incorporated to make it work. And fortunately in the organic space now, we have so many more tools than when I started working with organic growers, organic grape growers, you know, even, even 10 years ago, we have so many more tools available to us now in that space. And it's great. It allows us to really start to achieve the level of, as you mentioned, precision that, you know, that, that rivals, you know, conventional, you know, non-organic farming practices. And I think that's, you know, getting back to grapes. I think that's the other thing, because we, we work through, there's a ton of different systems in place, you know, and farming grapes there's organic biodynamic regenerative celestial biodynamic uh you know a a whole slew of biological products that are now hitting the market that we're we're learning as fast as we can about 
and we're learning they're replacing some conventional products, you know, especially with pruning wound seals oh, yeah. or protectants you can now apply. So, that, you know, and these are really new and exciting and, uh, and, and there's university research being done on them to, to prove that they're working or how they're working or if they're working at all. Yep, sure. you know, we really yeah. need that component too. Yeah, so there's a, there's just a ton of, and, and we, but no matter what the system is and no matter what the inputs we have, we take those and we apply that to our, you know, to our system. And so it's whatever the inputs are, the, the philosophy, we've got that available, but still the underlying kind of requirements of growing a good grape is the same. It doesn't matter if you're organic or conventional or biodynamic or, or whatever. You just have your toolbox, what's available to you. And yeah, I'm very excited for the, the biological space. Um, I'm working with a, a ton of different companies bringing some very interesting biological products that are, I mean, will rival, honestly, conventional systems pretty soon. There's a lot of cutting edge, cool stuff happening. Yeah, that it, might be another podcast. Yeah, I think it's a full podcast because, you know, uh, while this whole space of biologicals is really hot right now, I mean, it's catching everybody's attention. You can't l open up a, a, a trade magazine, a podcast or whatever, and it's all about biologicals. The cool part is here at Helena, we've been in the biological business. We've been involved in biologicals for over 25, 30 years. Yeah. Um, and absolutely in, in that space, you know, the plant extract, the biological component. And yeah, I'm, I'm, that's what excites me in taking on the new role that I have in, in managing organics is, is that it, it just, it opens up a lot of opportunity for, for us. And then in conjunction for our, our growers. Right. And, you know, Fritz mentioned, a you know, a biological product for pruning wounds. I'm working very closely with with that company for you know for us in California we're we're going to be using because it's got you know it, it works just as well as conventional fungicides if not better and and it's organic so it's you know and it's it's a biological product so it's safer it's easier to apply I mean there's just all these benefits and people just put it in this you know okay it's organic but it has a fit in conventional you know absolutely across the whole thing and so I I think that's the the really exciting part is, is that okay hey we we don't have to pigeonhole ourselves by just, you know, with labels, right? So you can be a conventional or a non-organic grower and use biological products. In fact, I absolutely, you know, encourage. It's encourage the future. That. It is. It's, 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 yeah, it's yeah. for resistance uh, development, for preventing that, for cross protection, new modes of action that you're introducing into the system that have no resistance uh, development. I mean, think about how long we've been using BT, yep, right. Bacillus thuringiensis. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for, you know, probably decades oh, now. like 50 oh, years. It still works. Like 50 years. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was yeah. a part of the team that launched BT corn in the early 90s. But to your point, yep. it was around, by Bacillus Thanagensis was around 15, 20 years prior to that yeah, as exactly. a granular. Yep, yep. No, it's interesting. So, you know, talking about, you know, viticulture and inputs and, and wine grapes, and, and I mean, it's just, you know, that's, it's awesome because we, we have so many, you know, new opportunities and, and new things coming, you know, coming to, to us that are available. And it really takes, you know, knowledge and experience and understanding That's how right. we can take those products and, and utilize them to the best, you know, to their maximum capability for, you know, for our customers. Yeah. And, and, and what's really cool is we're already introducing these things. Yep. <laughs> we, we, we launched uh, some here most recently, didn't we? Just we just launched, uh, yeah, launched Zonix, which is our uh, our new, our biofungicide. So it's a contact fungicide for downy mildew for its, it's Oh, yes. yes. We'll, Tell me we'll all talk about, about that, my friend. Um, but it's a, you know, it's a broad spectrum, you know, biological 
based contact fungicide and it, it has a fit in conventional chemistry absolutely conventional programs as well as organic it doesn't need to be so it's a great tool and it's just it's adding more arrows to the quiver as they say that allows us to continue to be resilient to all these you know these changes whether they are man-made regulatory or you know just as we're talking you know just nature right right i mean these you know, what we're dealing with in, in the wine industry is, you know, honestly similar to, to what, you know, most growers across the country are dealing with. And in, in, I don't care what crop you're in. I think it's, you know, the theme's the same there, right? We're, farming is an outdoor sport. It, it <laughs> and really Mother is. Nature has a <laughs> Mother Nature has a, uh, has a say, a big say. Well, and you, you nailed it. You know, when we launched Zonix, we knew that this is going to be addressing some of the needs that, that Fritz talked about. Mm. We're going to have more products that are going to spread out our risk because mm-hmm. uh, now now we've got this product we can introduce confidently, but we have some conventional uh, products as well, just again, to spread out the longevity and the risk of, you know, controlling some of these pests that we're all faced with. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. Guys, I, I tell you, kind of coming to an end here of our podcast here, but uh, Fritz, I absolutely want to thank you for joining us here on uh, the FieldLink podcast. And tell us once again, where can where can our listeners go to learn more about you and, and, and your advising service as well as your podcast? All right. Thanks so much for the opportunity. It's super easy. The podcast, you can find anywhere where you stream podcasts. It's called Vineyard Underground Podcast. So you can go to vineyardundergroundpodcast.com and search through all the episodes there. I will say they're not out yet, but episode 38 and 40 both cover biologicals and their use in vineyards, both for pruning wound protection on one and in general modes of action. So I've, I've got those in the pipeline and we should do one on that someday too. And then if you're interested in seeing some videos, whether it's pruning you need help with or young vine training or uh, some, some primers on vineyard nutrition and pest and disease management, I encourage uh, the listener to go to virtualviticultureacademy.com. And that's where I work with my national and international growers. That's the window to the world of grape growing that I talked about. And I'm very active in that community and in there a lot. So check that out. And if you just want to reach out to me or, or watch what I'm doing in the vineyard, if you do either Instagram or Facebook, you can find me at Westover Viticulture uh, or Westover Vit, V-I-T. So that's uh, if you're looking for the day-to-day to see what a vineyard in Georgia looks like or the Texas High Plains or somewhere in Louisiana or Arizona, uh, you can find me there. But I'm, I'm very, very, uh, as you can probably see, I'm very shy. So, so you know, <laughs> not not at all. Reach out anytime uh, and you can find uh, find me through those outlets there. If you go to vineyardundergroundpodcast.com, there's a Ask Fritz button. You can click that if you want to ask me a grape growing question or just reach out. Very good. Well, Fritz, we definitely want to thank you for sharing your insight today as we, you know, think beyond California, really. In this podcast, we think about grain grapes and for wine and everybody's head goes to California, but it's much bigger than that. And thanks for spreading that knowledge with us. And Paul, how can folks uh, learn a little bit more about your GrapeWise program? Well, we have uh, we have a webpage, um, Helena, our HelenaAgri.com website, and uh, we are active on social media. So I, I write, I have articles that I've written and I shoot video and those get put on Facebook and, uh, and Instagram. And so if you follow Helena, Helen Agri on uh, Facebook and Instagram, you can definitely see my, my GrapeWise videos and my GrapeWise, uh, you know, links to, um, my articles similar to Fritz. I write, I, I write articles on pre-bloom nutrition and, you know, uh, weed management and, and things like that. So anyway, I think those are, those are probably the, the best bets and, 
Yep, and, and you can always reach out to your Helena representative to Absolutely. learn more. Well, they'll get you connected uh, to learn more about the Great Wise program. Guys, want to thank you for joining us here on this episode of FieldLink. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me. And welcome back to FieldLink. I'm your host, Bill Smith. And uh, joining us right now from Nashville is Jody Lawrence. Uh, Jody, lots of things kind of happening in the market right now. We're hearing chirping out there. You know, recently we had a report come out. It's certainly uh, causing some questions out there in terms of supply. Some big news that came out of that report that uh, with some record yields. And we're still, you know, seeing some impact with some global supply chain uh, challenges, particularly through shipping uh, through the Red Sea. Jody, welcome to FieldLink. Thank you, Bill. It's good to be back after a holiday break. And uh, yes, all those things that you touched base on briefly uh, certainly have been impacting the market. The report really more in a net in a more negative way than a positive way. But the bright that you have to look at the bright side of it when everybody in our industry does their job, and this year they did it to a record uh, a record yield. We're just going to have more bushels, and more bushels uh, tends to uh, pressure prices. And it, but it, most of the farmers I've talked to, when you look at uh, the extra bushels they got as opposed to the fall in prices, it didn't completely offset each other, but it certainly helped by having those extra bushels because the USDA came out a little bit shocking because they raised the yield over the estimate in week ago Friday's report to a 177.3 bushel per acre yield. And the total crop came in at 15.342 billion bushels. Both of those are records for corn. And it really shows that when every, that where uh, production is going in the United States and around the world that as we get better genetics, as we get better uh, information, better products, and just better technology across the board, and then farmers are willing to learn and implement and do those things to get all the get every bushel they can out of every acre. That stewardship will lead to these record yields, and that's exactly what we've gotten. So, first of all, everybody deserves a huge congratulations for their part in it uh, after some really inconsistent weather across the entire Corn Belt. Yeah, if you think about it, Jody, this last summer, I know every podcast that we do, we talk about the weather and it's either really dry here or really wet here and just a lot of inconsistency uh, across the entire uh, Fruited Plains uh, and really around the world. Um, And and to your point, uh, when we settle down and we take a look at the end here at 177.3 average yield, boy, that really does tip of the old Stetson to the American producer out there for hitting those yields. It, exactly, because it's uh, we knew that it, w- it was coming. And when you look at it, the craziest part to me is, again, the Western Corn Belt had some really, really dry conditions. And then the Eastern Corn Belt had their troubles in June and really 4th of July rain saved uh, a lot of the crop. But you had some people doing 200 bushel corn who only had four, maybe five inches of rain over the course of the growing season. It just happened to fall at exactly the right time. There was a a big system that moved across the country around the 4th of July weekend and then another one about two weeks later. It really shows that where everything is, where all of the genetics are going, that things are becoming more heat resistant, more drought tolerant. The corn plants can take a little more stress than they could 
you know, just five, 10 years ago. Of course, taking a look at different technologies that can be applied to help reduce some of that stress certainly is, is helpful. Jody, let's talk a little bit about our, the here and now. Boy, uh, there, there's some opportunities in some cases for growers to take some positions. Uh, others, you know, it's time to sharpen the pencil. Uh, what's your advice right now as we take a look here uh, at the end of January and uh, taking a position for 24 crop? Yeah, we we. We know that when you produce record crops and Brazil had a record bean crop, Russia had a record wheat crop, and then the U.S. followed with a record corn crop, that uh, unless uh, on the demand side of it, things are just red hot, which they're they're good, and China is back to record demand, they are just filling their demand in a larger percentage of normal Brazil right now. But when you look at prices, we have 442 futures price in March corn, 475 in December corn, 1206 old crop beans, and 1190 on new crop. These certainly are not the most attractive prices we have seen over the past two or three years. Really, uh, you have to go all the way back to kind of right in the, the middle of COVID and in early 21 to have prices down here. But we, I believe we are in a position for a couple different reasons. First of all, the input costs uh, across the board are flat to maybe even a little bit lower. I'm hearing from some of our uh, friends at Helena. And when you look at that, that if we get the opportunity, which we always know there are going to be rallies, you just don't know what's going to drive it and what's going to, you know, when it's going to happen. But I think that it, if I was having targets, the first thing you have to do is know what your break even is, because w- right. we could get a 30 cent rally in corn, get it back over $5. But if some people listening are on the higher end of production costs and their total is, you know, 510, 520 on normal APH yields, then you hate to start and your bank certainly hates to see you start marketing at a loss to begin the year. So as, since we're this far into prepay, everybody should be able to sit down and get a really, really tight estimate on what their break-even costs are going to be and then just work backwards from there. Yeah, you bring up a great point. Getting a good handle on your cost of, uh, of production is absolutely critical. And, and I th- I think it's really important for producers not to just run with the number that they ran with last year because things are changing. And specifically, one area that's changing is, is the area of interest rates. That's certainly going to impact a, lo- a lot of growers' positions this year. Yeah, the, the example that I've been using in our meetings uh, so far this year is that the Federal Reserve, even though they are trending towards lowering rates very slowly sometime over the course of 2024, we're still sitting at the highest interest rates we've seen in 20 years. And the example that's really easy to see is they raised the prime rate 5% from early in 22 into 23. That 5% interest, it's almost impossible to you know, operate a farm of any size and not have a million dollar line of credit, whether it's through seed vendors or chemical uh, inputs or just or just a bank, that that extra 5% on a million dollars is $50,000 that is coming right off the bottom line, just going to pay additional interest. And right. if you're, uh, you know, if you look at it that way, that 
it it's it's hard because you're not getting to hire a new person. You that uh, you had the money for a couple of years ago. You're not buying new ground. You're not investing in new equipment or improvements on your farm. So that's something everybody really needs to pay attention to. And what the math example that I'm using for everybody is: be really, really careful about storing your bushels. First of all, you, no one should be paying any elevator uh, to store uh, a monthly storage charge because the markets, because of all the extra production around the world, are simply not in a position that we see you know, a, a quick 30, 40 cent rally in corn or 50, 70 cents in beans. So let's say you've got 100,000 bushels stored on farm. And in your mind, the way of thinking is, okay, well, I've paid for those bins. They're a convenience for me, and I'm, I'm going to store them and use them, hopefully get some carry and see if basis improves and also see if we get a rally. But if you have 100,000 bushels of corn stored on farm, and let's say you can get $5 for it, just to make the math easy, you've got a $500,000 asset sitting in those bins. And, you know, whether corn goes up a nickel or down a nickel, it moves every day with it. But the problem is if you also have a $500,000 line of credit or a loan with your bank, that interest rate at 9%, and we know it's 5% higher than last year, you're paying the bank $45,000 a year in interest. And that's $3,500 $3,500 plus, thirty almost $3,600 a month plus in interest that in effect, you're paying the bank so that you have the luxury of storing your corn on your farm. And I don't think everybody is really paying attention to that. It's certainly down the list. Mainly, it's not because any, people don't understand it. It's simply something we haven't talked about in a long, long time. And when you look at everything else that goes into running a farm, interest expense is probably pretty low on that checklist of things to figure out. You're right. And, and interest as a whole is kind of been off everybody's radar in agriculture for the last, you know, probably eight, 10 years up until most recent. So it's becoming a bigger, bigger uh, subject for for growers really to pay attention to. Exactly. And everybody wants to make prices rally and get more for your corn. Look at it this way. Just the, uh, if you paid off that interest and you saved yourself $45,000 over the course of just on $500,000 line of credit, 45000 over the course of next year, $45,000 against 100,000 bushels, that's a 45 cent rally. You just yeah. made your corn rally 45 cents, 45 cents by paying off that interest. And that doesn't happen w- every day, does it? No, <laughs> I, I, w- I wish I could uh, re- make that kind of return every day by making the decision. And I, and I know that it's a hard decision because uh, everybody's in the woulda, coulda, shoulda business right now. Why didn't I sell it in November when Brazil was having the weather problems? Why didn't I sell more in June sure. and July when the price was you know still you know well above five fifty? But it's just one of those things. We've been through this before in the ag industry. It's been been several years, but we lived through it then. We'll live through it again. That's kind of the the bitter irony of our industry. The better we do our job, 
the harder it is for me to do my job. And, uh, you know, because I, I, I don't like being on the road talking about 450 corn, but there are a lot of other things that, you know, the interest expense is a perfect example. You look at diesel, just kind of chopping around between 250 and 260 a gallon in futures. It's, it, it popped up today. A little more concern on the what's going on in the Middle East. And it's, I think, got up to 265 today. But there's a really good opportunity because last year diesel was 80 cents, almost a buck higher than where it is now. So there's one expense you can control. You can certainly control your interest expense if you've got stored bushels. And everybody said, well, I don't want to sell them down here because it's it, we're on the lows, making new contract lows. It is so easy to reown those bushels through a variety of fashions. Some of the elevators may let you open an account and use their margin money. Uh, we do brokerage as well that owning them on paper uh, and ending that interest expense, you are in a better position than just storing uh, your your bushels on farm. Definitely a, a lot of opportunities to take advantage of there and really pay attention to as it relates to the interest rates and really you're just your overall position. Now, Jody, you touched on something a little bit there uh, about some supply issues potentially that could impact uh, as we take a look at the 24 crop, but we're starting to see some supply challenges right now through the Red Sea. Uh, I know some of our suppliers that are supplying us raw materials for some input products, you know, starting to get stretched a little bit, starting to see some of those costs go up. How do you feel this is going to impact eh, potentially the 24 crop? Well, you look at all of the shipping problems. I don't think we've ever seen the Suez Canal be a problem and the Panama Canal both be a problem. Panama Canal, because of their record drought, the the lake in between the entrances, which is the biggest part of the canal, is so low that you have lower barge capacity and draft limits. And, you know, same as when the Mississippi was so low uh, at the beginning of this summer and then the summer of 22. And then with all the tensions and the piracy and bombing of the ships in the Red Sea, Suez Canal is also off limits for a lot of people because they just don't want to take the risk. And by the time you start going the long way around Africa or right. South America, you really start to add on those shipping charges. So it's been for a while, it was helpful to the U.S. because we were able to sell some beans and get them out of the Pacific Northwest and out of the West Coast terminals, but that slowed down a little bit. It's it, The world freight rates are either at or making new record highs almost every day, and this is going to be both availability when you talk about some of a lot of the inputs that we get uh, from the Middle East, whether it's, you know, potash or you just, you know, pick anything that they're mining over there and putting on a boat to get to us. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, uh, it, we're not, we're not, it's certainly not a uh, COVID logistical nightmare uh, scenario, but we know it's going to be more expensive because it's just taking longer for safe passage of everything to get where it's supposed to go. Yeah, that's right. It's coming down to, you know, missiles this time versus viruses and uh, in a lot of cases and drought, as you mentioned, down uh, in South America. Jody, on some positive news, some good news coming out of the soy diesel area, uh, some announcements in California. What's the news there? Yes, they 
they got approval for the EPA and the, and the plant is already built. It was just a matter of what was California's EPA, their environmental protection laws and agency going to approve it with, uh, you know, once it got, it's kind of like getting a certificate of occupancy if you're building a house and sure. they approved it. And the crazy thing about this is that plant is so big that it's going to need probably about 150,000 bushels of beans a day to work at capacity, you know, where they want to. And when you look at the soy biodiesel, the jet fuel industry, where it sits right now with all the momentum in it, it really, you can go back and everybody remembers what a big deal ethanol was 20 years ago. And right at the infancy of that, everybody's like, hey, we'll, you know, we'll use any, uh, anything we can do to use more corn, we'll be happy. And it was a big deal in the early 2000s when we got to a billion bushels of use. And right now we're going to use roughly 5.2, 5.3 billion bushels or a, a little over a third of the entire U.S. corn crop just for ethanol. And we believe that the soy biodiesel industry between the, uh, the uh, the support and of all of the uh, uh, you know the airlines Delta Southwest everybody else and the amount of money that they will save on carbon credits because it is a much lower emission fuel that everybody's adoption of this and the IRS really made the whole thing very uh, far more viable because what they said was all of these tax credits and all of the positives that is helping this industry get off the ground that they are going they are not going to give them those those tax breaks and apply and th then they will even find them if they import those beans or bean oil from South America so this is really a US internal domestic demand issue that at the rate they're building the plants and what could possibly come on you know within the next 18 months you could be looking at somewhere between an extra, you know, 400 to 600 million bushels of extra bean use just in the United States. And you look at this year's yield at 50 bushels an acre, 500 million bushels, you'd have to have 10 million more bushels just to uh, keep up with the growth of this industry if it does take off like the ethanol industry did. And that's what that to me is the most exciting thing that when you talk about a positive bullish uh, trend for 24 and 25. I'm keeping real close tabs on it, and I think it'll be a huge uh, opportunity for ag in general and United States bean production. Yeah, definitely a great opportunity for soybean producers across the country uh, looking at ways to take that average yield from 50 to maybe 55 this year and capitalize on some of that uh, that growth due to technology. Jody, want to thank you for joining us here on this episode of FieldLink. Appreciate you for joining us. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Phil Lake. And remember, Zypro opens the doors to nutrition by boosting soil productivity, enhancing root effectiveness. Contact your Helena representative to learn more about Zypro.